So our culture has uh, this weird idiom that we use as both a positive and as a negative. I'm curious, when we talk about getting your hands dirty, I wonder how you hear that. Do you hear that as talking about going and doing hard work and getting your hands literally in the earth? Or do you hear getting your hands dirty as talking about getting into some shady business? Either way, both of those phrases, however you take it, however you take this, it's literally talking about getting your hands into the thick of what you are doing. See, when God created Adam and Eve, he put them in a garden to work it and to tend to it. Literally, since our very first day, the idea of getting dirt underneath our fingernails, that's godly work right there. And so when we talk about our faith, I want your faith to be as raw and real that it literally feels like dirt underneath your fingernails. And so we're going to be talking about today, talking about a faith that's raw. We're going to be in Luke chapter 24. We're going to be looking at verses 36 to 43 today, if you want to head there. We are on week three of a sermon series called Dirt Road Disciples, where we talk about how to have a gritty faith, a faith that's real, as real as the dirt beneath our feet when we walk down a dirt road. And we've been walking through this story called the Emmaus Road. And if you haven't been with us, let me just catch you up to speed before we read our verse, where we've been at in this, in this passage. So this is the day of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This passage that we read happens literally on the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And on that day, we, there's these two disciples who were in Jerusalem, and they decide they're going to walk to Emmaus, probably walking home to Emmaus, which is about a seven-mile walk from Jerusalem to the town of Emmaus. And Jesus, the risen Jesus, shows up and walks along with them, but they don't know that it's him. He keeps them from fully recognizing him. And rather than just out of the gate, him showing up and saying, it's me, boys, I've risen from the dead, it's as I said. Rather than doing that, he wants to prepare their hearts for this great revelation, and so he spends that seven-mile walk opening up the scriptures to them, basically giving them a Bible study for their entire walk. Well, they get to their destination, they get to Emmaus, and they tell these two disciples, they tell this stranger, hey, why don't you come in and have dinner with us? And so he does, and it's over dinner that Jesus reveals his true nature to them, and their eyes are opened. And in that moment, it says that Jesus vanished before their eyes. Now, these two disciples, they reflect on this moment, and they just, they're overwhelmed by the gravity of that, as any one of us would be. And so they say, we've got to get back to Jerusalem tonight. We've got to go there right now and find the other disciples and tell them that Jesus has risen from the dead. So late in the day, they go rushing back to Jerusalem. They find the disciples. They find a bunch of Christians who are gathered, and they walk into this room, and they're going to tell them, guys, it's true. Jesus has risen from the dead. We just met them. But as they walk in, those disciples are already sharing that story because he's already appeared. And so as they're swapping these stories about Jesus being risen from the dead, that's where we are going to pick up in our passage. So I encourage you to, I always encourage you uh, to have your Bibles open and read this along with me. But if you don't have that, it'll be up on the screen. Hear me as I read the word of the Lord. Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 43. And as they were talking about these things, about Jesus rising from the dead, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. And they were startled and frightened, for they thought that they saw a spirit. And he said to them, 
Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it before them. This is God's word, everyone. Let's pray and then let's get to it. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we thank you for the truth of your word. My prayer is that you would guard my mouth from speaking untruths, that you would guard the hearts in here from hearing things that are untrue, that are not of you. So I pray that you would open our hearts and eyes to receive your truth deep into our soul, that we may be transformed at a soul level, at a DNA level, as we are transformed more and more into the image of our glorious Savior. And it's in his name that we pray these things. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Let me start off by asking you a question. What is the cost if we lose truth? What is the cost if we lose truth? If we lose truth, then we are subject to the whims and wishes of the emotional and cultural state of any society of any generation. If we lose truth, we will become slaves to whatever is popular at the moment. So this begs the question, if the cost is high to lose truth, then what is the price that we're willing to pay to keep truth? Are you willing to lose Instagram followers? Are you willing to lose your job? Because Christians have lost their lives in the pursuit of keeping truth. Not my truth, not your truth, not our truth, not their truth, but the truth. See, one of the things that's been most profound to me about this entire story that we've been reading for these past few weeks is before Jesus reveals himself as the risen Savior, he wants to make sure those two disciples that they know the truth of God's word so that they can filter their experience through God's word. See, in our culture, you know this is true. In our culture, we put personal experience as the highest truth. Whatever you are personally experiencing, that is the ultimate truth for any given person. And Jesus comes along and he says, I've got a way for you to filter your experiences. I've got a way for you to understand what you experience in life. And it's through God's word. And that's why with every sermon in this sermon series, we've been breaking this entire message series down into two main parts. We first talked about being grounded in truth so that from truth, we can develop a gritty faith. So what we mean by grounded to truth is that we're simply going to walk through this text together. So let's go back to our very first verse, verse 36. Let's read it and let's, let's take this piece by piece. So as they were talking about these things in this room with all the Christians talking about the risen Jesus, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace to you. And they all freaked out because they thought they saw a ghost. Because Jesus, just as he supernaturally vanished before the Emmaus disciples in Emmaus. Now he supernaturally appears to them right before, they, right before their eyes. And they all understandably freak out because they think they saw a ghost, as I imagine any one of us would. But I love what Jesus says in this moment. He says, peace to you. 
Because this is what Jesus brings. He brings peace. Peace among his people and peace between people and God. Jesus brings peace. And this truly is a picture of peace. Jesus with his people. That is peace. Not just peace, church. But peace in our souls. Shalom. Jesus with us. That's why I love when the church gathers. And I know for a time, we are... That's been mixed up because of COVID. But I think the church is meant to be together and Jesus by his spirit is meant to be with us. And from that, we can feel a peace that we are meant to bring to the world around us. He shows up and he says, peace to you. And then you see what he does here? He presses into the moment because Jesus just doesn't move past our doubts. He camps out on them. He sees that, yes, they're frightened because they thought they saw a spirit. But he sees beyond that and he sees into their soul. He sees something else going on. He presses into that moment. And even as they stare at them, he sees their reluctance. And I love what he says. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet? It is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. Did you catch this? He said it, and then he showed them. He said it, and then he showed them. He said it was him, and then he invited them in to see for themselves, to touch and see. Christians in the house, we need to say it and show it. We need to say the gospel with our mouths, and then we need to show the fruit of the gospel in our lives. He said it, and he showed it. And check out what happens. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. Hold on a second here. What do you mean they disbelieved for joy? Now, you know exactly what this means. They sat there and they thought, this is too good to be true. They were in the moment of their great hope was being realized as a fundamental truth of the universe. And it was overwhelming for them. It brought up such joy that it was, it was too good to believe. This is too good to be true. But yet Jesus presses into that moment. See, Jesus could have just come with lightning and thunder and demanded that they bow before him, before his greatness. But that's not what Jesus does. He meets them where they are at. He says, peace to you. And then he presses into their doubts. That's the type of savior I want to follow. That's the type of savior that we have in Jesus And he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and he ate it before them, meaning like in their company. Jesus is like, what you cooking, boys? What you got for dinner? And then he does what Jesus does. He has a meal with his people. I love this. In this meal, by eating this fish, he's further proving he's not a ghost. He's not a spirit. This is not a trick. This is truly, really, actually him. The resurrected, physical, actual Jesus. So let's just take an aside real quick. And let's talk about Jesus' resurrection. What was his body like here? What, What can we pick up from this passage? Let's talk about the resurrected Jesus and then let's investigate what his resurrected body shows us about our own future resurrection. We see here, we see here in this passage that Jesus has his resurrected and glorified 
body. Before he was born on that Christmas day and given the name Jesus, he existed eternally as the second member of the Trinity, as God the Son, and we call him the Son of God. But in his incarnation, when he was born, that human baby boy, we see that Jesus, his eternal divinity, was forever wedded to a human nature. See, he does not shed his body and return to heaven as simply this transparent spirit. Rather, we see him keep his body. And I want you to notice a few things about this. First thing, this body is not bound by space and time. He now vanishes and appears at will. But yet this body still enjoys a meal. Broiled fish, to be honest. That is beautiful. He's showing us that he still has a physical body. The reason that he shows him his hands and his feet is because they, he still has the marks of the crucifixion. And the reason that he, in his glorified body, he still bears the marks, the nail holes of the crucifixion, is because those are not the wounds of a victim. They are the scars of a victor. They're part of his crown. This is the body that rose from the grave, and this is the body that he'll rise to heaven with. But what does Jesus' own resurrection have to say about our resurrection? Jesus says in John chapter 11, verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And so people have wondered, hmm, what does that look like to continue to live even though you die? What does eternal life look like? I mean, after, our die, after we die and we get these resurrected bodies, what is that like? See, Christians have been asking that question since the very beginning. In fact, they were even asking that question as the Bible was being written. And so the Apostle Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he answers their question. I'm going to read to you some selections where he gives answer to that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you can go back to a Bible study later, but Paul addresses that question. So let me read you some of the things that he says about our own resurrected bodies. Paul writes, starting at verse 35, he says, But some will ask, how are the dead raised? And what kind of body do they come with? And he goes on to say that what is sown is perishable. Now, what is sown just basically means what is born, what is natural. He said, what is born, what is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. It is sown, it is born in weakness, but it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, and it is raised a spiritual body. He goes on to say in verse 47, he says, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. Who's he speaking of there? Anybody? Adam. Yeah, he's speaking of Adam. The first man was of the earth. He was a man of dust, Adam. The second man is from heaven, speaking of Jesus. He says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, I know this is very lofty theological type language to say some very beautiful and profound and powerful truths. Here's the idea. Yes, the resurrection of Jesus does give us an image and a hope for our own resurrection, What Paul is saying is that in our resurrected bodies, which, yes, will lay in the ground and return to dust, they will be raised in glory to a glorified body that is no longer subject to death or decay or sickness. Yes, still a physical body, 
but imperishable, raised in glory, from which and in which we will enjoy heaven in the presence of God. When we look at our bodies and we see them grow old, and we no longer have the energy that we once did, or we look at young bodies who, because of the sin and brokenness in this world, become sick, we can know at every moment that our great hope that we have in Jesus, among many things, is that he is making all things new, and that will include our bodies. So will we still eat in heaven? Yup. Can't wait to have a good old burger with you up in heaven, if we have those. Will we still walk down a dirt road in heaven? Yes, we will. And I can't wait for that. I can't wait for the time that we're going to have in eternity when I can walk down a dirt road with all of you and you can walk down a dirt road with all the times with, with pe- all the people that you didn't have time for here. Like, this is a beautiful thing that we get to long for. But some of you might ask, um, what age will we be in heaven? How old will we be? Right? I mean, here's what I'd say. That that's a question I don't have an answer to. That question deals with what is known as the eternal state. Meaning, when we die, are we the age at which we die? If a 10-year-old dies, is that person 10 years old forever? If a person dies at 89, are they 89 forever? See, the Bible doesn't give us that sort of detail. But it does give us hope that for whatever bodies we have, they will be glorified in imperishable bodies, no longer subject to the death and decay of sin. Our passage is about how Jesus appears out of nowhere, and yet he still has his crucifixion wounds, and yet he still has a meal with them. See, there is so much going on in this passage, and this passage gives us hope for what is yet to come. Yes, our bodies may die and may dissolve into dust, but God will remake us. Paul says in a moment, In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. It's beautiful. But some of you may be asking, so what? So what if this happens? Well, here's what I'd say, that this truth should remind us how raw and real our faith is, that we will still be physical and spiritual in the fullest sense that we're not going to float up to heaven as some transparent spirit to sit on the cloud. We'll be people in bodies walking around enjoying eternity, yet without the pain and sickness or decay of death. And so now that we've taken a few moments uh, and grounded ourselves in truth and had a little bit of a theological aside here, how do we take this great hope, this great truth, and how do we develop a truly gritty faith that we may live in light of this? Let me give you a couple things. But let me first start by reminding us of the beginning of our message today. That we talked about how it's truly godly to have dirt underneath our fingernails. I think our faith is godly when it gets so deep into us that it's literally like under our fingernails. That it's gritty and real and raw. And So I'm going to just give one more qualifier. Of all the application pieces of this entire sermon— series, I think the two that I'm going to talk about today are the two hardest. 
So let's get to it. First thing I would tell us is this, is that gritty faith lets people in. Gritty faith lets people in. Jesus says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Jesus Christ himself, with all of creation at his command, he invited them to touch him, to invade his personal space, to enter into a level of godly intimacy that only faith can bring. He let them in so that through their hands they could see the truth. We, I believe this about our culture here, we are people who are willing to do hard work. Amen? Amen. We work in the garden. We gut deer, we clean house, we change diapers, we swing a hammer. We're willing to do hard work. Here's my question for you. Are you willing to do the hard work of waiting in patience with hands folded in prayer, seeking the Lord and waiting on the Lord? Are you willing to do the hard work of letting people in? Christians, Christians in the house, you have the truth and the love of God in your heart but are you letting people into your life to experience that? Just like Jesus let them in to touch him, that people may know the truth, we need to let people into our lives so that they may see and know the truth. There's a big part of me right now that just wants to hammer in this idea of taking this and you need to reach out to your friends and neighbors. And you need to open up your home and invite them in. I got that in my back, my back pocket. I'll bring that out one day. That's not what I want to say here today. This whole idea of like letting people in, for some reason, COVID has just brought to the surface so much brokenness in our world, hasn't it? And there's been one really profound, consistent way that I've seen God just bring us as a church to people in ways to minister to them in their brokenness, and it's through broken marriages. And so when I talk about letting people in and sharing a space of faith, so much so that it's like intimacy, the first thing I'm going to say this is I think that we need to start in our marriages. For too many marriages, you don't share a space of faith. For too many marriages, you don't open up about the gospel's work in your own life. For too many marriages, you don't speak truth and speak Jesus into your spouse. For too many marriages, we just don't grab each other's hand and seek the Lord in prayer and confess and just say, here's how Jesus has been working in my life. Here's how I see him working in yours. So I think for too many marriages, faith is just like an aside. It's like people would say, yeah, I got a house, a couple of kids, we got a dog, we go to church, I play golf, she gets on Pinterest. And it's just like this thing Instead of it being the actual lifeblood of our marriages, the thing that unites us together, the gospel is the thing that our marriages are meant to point to. And therefore, I would say the gospel is the thing that our marriages should be founded on. I would say this, I mean, this isn't just something I see among people who have been married for 10, 15, 30 years. Like from the very beginning, I see this. 
I've done so many weddings in my time and married and been, been able to officiate the marriage of so many young couples, but you'd be just surprised, or maybe not surprised, but either way, I was surprised about how many young couples come to my office wanting premarital Christian counseling so that they can have a Christian marriage and have a Christian pastor marry them, and yet they've never actually prayed together. And from the very beginning, we don't put the gospel as the foundation of our relationships among the most precious relationship we have, and that is with your spouse. Husbands, I'm going to call you out because I'm calling myself out right now. I'm not asking you when's the last time you prayed with your wife. That's simple. I'm asking when's the last time you opened up, let her in, and shared your struggles, led through that, but through your vulnerability showed a strength that she needs to see in you. Listen to me. I know some of you are like, well, now I got to do it because the pastor said so. No. Like, <laughs> you know what? Why else do you come to church? So I can help share with you that my struggles too. I ain't no perfect man. Don't look at me and think, oh, he's a perfect husband. Please, get my wife up here. She'll tell you something else. <laughs> but the gospel's working on me. And the gospel's been working on me for a long time. I'm not where I will be, but thank God I'm not where I was. We as the church have a chance to show the world something about our relationships. And we're not going to show them anything different if the gospel is not the core. And so before you go and open up your lives to your friends and your neighbors, make sure that you and your spouse are sharing such an intimate space of faith. It's literally like Jesus is there. We need to be letting people in. Jesus, do you notice this? He said, he showed them his hands and his feet. This is beautiful here. He pointed to his hands and feet because his hands and his feet still held the scars of the nails of his crucifixion. So follow me here. Not only did Jesus let them touch him, he let them touch his scars. The wounds that he suffered from his sacrifice became the evidence they needed for their faith. Christians, life does give us scars. Trying to live a biblically faithful life in this world, it will scar you and it hurts and it's painful. And we wish that we didn't have to go through it, but we do. And we end up with scars. But the faith that we show in the midst of that hurt, that is something that people will look to and see. And through that, they will see Jesus in us. But we have to let people in, invite them to touch our lives so that they may see the truth to see our scars and to know that our faith is real, even through the scars, even through the pain, we have a good and faithful Savior. Jesus, let them touch his scars so that they would know he was real. I think we need to let people into our lives and yes, maybe even touch our scars so that they will know our faith is real. And I know it's hard to let people in because people are what hurt us. And I'm not gonna promise you that if you let people in, they're not going to hurt you again. But I'm saying that Jesus continued to, to the point of death. And we have a mission, and it is a very high and costly one. But thanks be to God that we don't pay the price. We just live in light of the grace given to us. Truth, our world thinks, is to be decided. Truth is not to be decided. It is to be discovered. And so let people discover the truth in you because you have such a gritty and raw and real faith, but you have to let people in. And I say start 
with your spouse. Gritty faith lets people in. And I would also say that gritty faith is not built on fear or anxiety, but joy and assurance. Now, let me just give a quick little qualifier here. I think that we have lost the art of a good and healthy fear of the Lord. I think we should instill the fear of God into our kids. But a holy, reverent respect because he is great. But I see here in this moment that Jesus presses through that to calm that, to give them joy, and to remind them that he's here. He has been risen from the dead so that they may have assurance. So again, don't get me wrong. A healthy level of fear is good for many aspects of life. And the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. But look at this verse. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it before them. We have a savior who even in the midst of their disbelief, while they still disbelieved, he let them touch him. He let them see the raw and open scars of his victory so that they might know and believe. And while they still disbelieved, he said, give me that fish. You guys obviously aren't getting this. Let me eat some fish. You know I'm real. So he took broiled fish and he ate it in front of them so that they may have an assurance of their faith that he has risen from the dead. I don't know about you, but I think for many, many of us, we want to believe. We say we believe and we want to believe, but we haven't tipped the point to an overwhelming joy and an eternal security and an assurance for our lives. I think if we all tipped, we'd be a much louder during the worship service. And, I'm, and praise be to God, we're not saved because we have great faith. We're saved because we have a great faithful Savior. But I'm saying to you is that I think there is an aspect of joy and assurance that some of us haven't tipped to fully experience. Jesus showing up is all about giving them assurance. He appears out of nowhere to show that his power is real. He invites them to touch him so that they will know that he is real. He eats a meal to show that he's real. To give them assurance There is so much uncertainty in the world right now. COVID, mass shootings, injustice, right? And those are just the headlines from yesterday. I don't know what you have in your life for levels of uncertainty. But gritty, raw, or real, however you want to put it, the joy of knowing Jesus and the joy of the resurrection provides an assurance at an eternal level that gives us hope for each and every day. I wonder for how many people when you die that moment where your eyes on this side of eternity close for the last time and your eyes of eternity open on the next side of eternity. I wonder for how many people when your eyes open on that side of eternity you'll be like Oh my goodness, it is real. And in that moment, you will experience a joy that you could have begun to tap into on this side of eternity, but we haven't truly embraced the insurance that Christ has given us. I want you to experience the joy of knowing him now. 
the gritty, raw, and real faith and joy of being assured that he's been risen from the dead so assuredly that it's literally like dirt underneath your fingernails, that that's how raw and real your faith is. And that happens by opening up to others, experiencing Jesus. There's a reason that we as the church are called the body of Christ. Yeah, I wish he was here that I could touch him. But he is here with us by the power of his spirit so that we could interact with each other and know that he's real and the world out there could come and see and believe. The world will give us fear and anxiety, but Christ offers joy and assurance. Assurance that his death on the cross has surely paid for your sins. Assurance that his resurrection from the grave now points to our own resurrection. That even though our bodies may give way here, they will be raised to glory there. Assurance that no matter how this day goes, even if this is your very last day, we have a Savior with real scars waiting to have a real meal with us so that we can have a real and raw faith. Amen. Would you please stand? We're going to sing and pray. I'm just going to warn you right now, we're going to sing an old hymn called Blessed Assurance. And as we sing this song, here's my challenge to you, especially if you know and love this song from days gone by. Don't sing it because you love the song. Sing it because you believe these truths. Let's pray. Father, I want to say thank you, Lord, that our risen Jesus will come and had a meal with people to show that he was truly physically raised from the dead. That's how powerful our Savior is. And I pray, Lord, we'd also see how intimate he is, that he is willing to meet us where we are. Lord, he shows up and he says, peace to you. He gives us peace in our lives. He gives us assurance of what is to come. You've made great promises to us, Lord, and we thank you. And so, Lord, I pray that as we sing unto you this blessed assurance, I pray that your spirit would fill these people so that our voices may be heard unto the heavens and across this earth because we have a good and faithful Savior in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. And everyone said, amen, amen. Let's sing together.